Welcome to Tax Breaks, a podcast by the Federation of Tax Administrators, where we delve into current subjects and their relevance to the realm of tax administration. Each episode of our podcast features conversations with esteemed professionals from government, academia, and the private sector. Our guests generously share their wealth of knowledge and unique perspectives, providing invaluable insights and expertise to our listeners. I'm Ryan Minnick, FTA's Chief Operating Officer, and this episode, I was joined by Frank Nestori, Vice President at MathTech, for a conversation about project management and government. It's a really great discussion. I hope you stick with us through the end for a couple of tips from Frank, and whether you're new to project management, you're getting ready to embark on a large project within your government agency, or if you just have an interest in how project management is different in government than in the private sector, you won't want to miss this conversation. Thanks for listening. Before we kick things off too terribly much, I want to kick it over to Frank to introduce himself. Frank, thanks for sitting down with me this this month. Thank you, Ryan. I'm really happy to be here. Um, always great to catch up with you at FTA events. So great now to catch catch up and uh, record it so everybody can see it. Um, so uh, about me. So I've been working in project management, uh, IT services in that field for about 25 years um, I actually started my career as an engineer, uh, believe it or not. I was oh, a chemical engineer, um, and I did some field work for a couple of years, did some some international travel, got that out of my system early. Um, and then um, a friend of mine uh, had an opportunity, Arthur Anderson, back uh, in the late 90s. And uh, so I started working in that uh, in the consulting profession. Um, and then spent some time at a smaller boutique firm for about a decade. And then I actually joined MathTech. I think I'm coming up on 12, 12 years, I think it is. Um, and when I joined MathTech, um, I think it was 2012, the, uh, the focus, my experience shifted from private sector to public sector. So I have experience in both and my career up to, you know, 2012 was, was uh, private sector, but now predominantly public. That's awesome. Yeah, this is a particularly interesting topic for me because, you know, I find I, I always joke and say I'm a recovering project manager. I think, you know, there's two professions that you're always recovering from. One is law and one is project management. And you know, <laughs> the the notion of project management is much like uh, we've talked about this on other episodes, much like the notion of technology. It's It's everywhere. And you can have the biggest budget and the best ideas, but without the basics. Uh, things can go really, really sideways. And we've seen that at different stages. Uh, you know, you can kind of crack open any any publication or any news source and find a project somewhere in government that's gone over budget or has failed or didn't have change management. And so I, I just thought this would be such a great topic for us to chat about for, for a little bit and help people understand sure. that, you know, everybody knows, I think, generally what project management is, but then I don't think they see necessarily the critical role that it plays in all the different aspects. And it's been actually Part of a few conversations I've had even the last week where there's elements of project management that I think are, are newer and more timely today, uh, things like change management and people that traditionally haven't been as big of a focus. And there's so much data now that suggests that if you don't holistically look at something, um, you're, you're not going to necessarily see the same level of success that you would see if you, if you, if you did. So let's let's level set. We always love to do definitions uh, on the podcast. I'm notorious for using acronyms and terms that uh, make no sense to anybody who's not in government. So we're going to try to stay away from it. But let's uh, let's get a quick definition from you of what project management is, especially in the kind of technical services and government world. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I, I loved your intro because I have been thinking about this. Um, and I really feel like if I were to explain to somebody what project management is to me, it's the orchestration of all of these various people and teams and tasks for one goal. That goal can be enormous, right? I mean, project management is how we got to the moon. Um, project management is how tax agencies implement new systems. There are typically, you know, easily a hundred people on those projects, uh, doing various technical activities, business, um, process analysis activities, uh, data review activities, all those things. So I think project management is about orchestration. <clears throat> the other part of it I think is important, um, is I view project management as our, our job is to uh, facilitate those interactions. It is to identify issues that need to be addressed, uh, questioned, resolved, and then find the right people to get the subject matter expertise to get those things resolved. And it's a tangent to what you were just talking about because I think there's traditional PMBOK, right? Which is the project management body of knowledge, mm -hmm. which is very straightforward. It's very structured and it's how I got drawn to project management. I'm, I just like to be organized and structured, but then there's the, the fact that no project happens without people and relationships and interactions. So um, I don't know if that's a, a good comprehensive answer or if I'm rambling or whatever, but that that's what, what I was thinking as I was getting ready for this podcast is how do I explain it? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's perfect. I think it provides that context that people would need to kind of understand what we're going to talk about because like any like any skill set there's a translation that happens between the private sector and the public sector and you know i've certainly experienced this so i've been working in the public sector for you know almost 10 years now i previously had a combination of public and private clients and what i think you fail to understand until you're all in in the government sector is functionally how different um the the kind of the, the motivations are for doing projects um how much institutional knowledge is actually impacted. I mean, I think a lot of people want to sometimes consider government to be something more like a legacy Fortune 500 company, like a GE. You know, GE's been around for over 100 years. Project management's core to what they do. They're very lean. But at the end of the day, GE's also got profit margins and reporting to stockholders. And there's a, there's a set of motivations there that I would argue traditionally have been big motivators for big projects, whereas in government, you know, by design, government moves a little bit slower. Mm -hmm. um, innovation happens at a, at a more measured pace, I think, for a lot of good reasons, because if, if government could change as rapidly as a private company could, then, you know, citizens would probably have no idea which way is up most of the time. Mm -hmm. And right. you have, as a result, a different perspective from stakeholders in government. So change is a little bit harder to tackle in government than it is in the private sector. Um, new ideas take a little bit more work to to get rooted and and the educational component becomes so important because especially with the types of projects that that we're going to talk about today like big tax systems and and things that touch you know every employee of a in some cases multi thousand person agency there's a lot that people do within their careers over and over and over again and then a new system or a new methodology comes along and they've got to change so on that note because you have this blended experience what are some challenges you've noticed that are kind of different in government projects versus private sector projects? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I would say the number one challenge that I've experienced and I've seen is um, the lack of resources. 
and I think there's two parts to that, right? There is the basic part, which is government has a problem um, competing with tech talent and just in general um, talent because of the pay structure. Um, that's just a known issue. And I think a lot of jurisdictions struggle with that. Um, but the other part of it is a lack of resources, but also a very select few now that know and understand the legacy systems that still exist in government. And you do have that in other, other industries, um, uh, private sector industries, like banking has a lot of legacy mainframe still. Um, but in the, in the, in the public sector, it really is a challenge, right? Because if you're going to implement a new system, you're going to have to make sure the new system implements the rules of the business. But in order to do that, you have to understand the rules of the business. And some of these old systems were, are poorly documented, and maybe there's a handful, in some cases, one or two people that have been there for 30 years who know it and who actually can go in and read the code and understand what the rules are. So I think that is a, a pretty unique challenge, uh, that resourcing piece, because in addition, those people who can help you on a project understand the rules also are the ones that have to keep that system running. Because <clears throat> if you're implementing a new tax system, you can't afford for that to go down. Um, you have to keep it running. And so you're, you're funneling all this work through a select uh, few people. That inflection point we're hitting to right now, where right now is kind of the best and the worst time to do big system level projects in government. It's the best time in the sense that you've got this whole group of folks that are at the end of their careers. Um, probably the more critical ones have delayed their retirement, you know, either by request or by incentive. And yet you also have, you know, this opportunity because they're still there. And then, you know, five, 10 years from now, they won't be there. So any entity that's not actively looking at how do we, and, and to level set for people that are listening, I mean, this is not like upgrading from Windows 10 to Windows 11. This is taking <laughs> technologies from, you know, the 1980s and leapfrogging a lot of technical innovation that's happened throughout the 90s and the 2000s. And really, in some cases, you're moving from technologists that listen from COBOL or some, for some very legacy code bases, uh, mainframes, and you're moving to, you know, cloud-based technologies that are all API driven. I mean, this is a the equivalent of, of taking a time machine into the future for a lot of these organizations. So your point about talent, I, I think I, I wholeheartedly agree with, but when we look at things from a perspective as an organization, since we kind of provide subject matter consulting to these, uh, these agencies, we get really concerned about knowledge retention because that knowledge is, is actively leaving agencies. And in some cases it's, not always by choice because, you know, government fortunately still has a certain band of, of people that work there because they're dedicated public servants, they've given their whole career to it. Um, but that, as we all know about generations and work styles and how all that's changing, you know, there's not another group of 30 year or 20 year employees behind this group to backfill any of that if, if we don't, you know, act swiftly and, and intentionally. So. Well, it's interesting. And I know, um, Maybe we'll talk about this later, but I'm I'm wondering how <clears throat> AI is going to help with the investigation of current systems and the identification of business rules. And obviously, it has to be firewalled and it has to be uh, contained. But like, I could see the ability to unleash that on you know an old COBOL system and tell me what all you know tell me all the rules mm -hmm. that we need. 
So that might be able to help. But I agree with you. I think we're at a time where we really have to focus on that. Um, and that's where, you know, the, the concept of governance comes in. So project management, I feel like we deal a lot with the blocking and tackling of orchestrating all these parts. But another big part of it is the governance piece, which is how decisions are made on a project. So project management is not governance and governance isn't PM, but you need to understand the process of governance. And I believe that's where project managers have to wear a lot of different hats because you need to be able to understand how to elevate these issues so that leaders understand the impact of them and can guide and steer and say, yeah, you're right. Like we know that, you know, um, this person supports the mainframe and they're always busy doing that. Um, but we need to apply resources to kind of free them up a bit somehow, document their knowledge, sit with them, um, learn some specific tasks to support because we have to look ahead. So I don't want to take us too far down a tangent, but like, I feel like that's another big part of uh, what we're asked to do as project managers. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think anyone, this, this also, I think is a myth buster opportunity for project managers, right? Project managers have a scope that they operate within. And this is probably, if you're in government and you're listening, a really good action item for you to take away, which is that, you know, project management is about kind of preserving and understanding the translation of, of something old to something new when you're, when you're working on a project. But the responsibility of project management isn't inherently, you know, finding and figuring out documentation for something that's never existed. So if you're about to embark on a big project, you know, you can never start too early with doing that documentation, figuring out that knowledge retention, like that, those resources are going to make a project more successful. And I think sometimes a lot of organizations fall into the trap of, oh, well, when we start a project and we bring on the project manager, they're going to know what to do. And at that point, you know, you've just added a ton of time to your, to your project timeline, because if the first, you know, year of a project, you're doing nothing but, but documentation and knowledge retention, you know, you're not necessarily taking full advantage of, of your project management resource because you're, you're just adding time to what you're already working on. So yeah. I think that's a, yeah, not, not too tan tangential at all. I think it's a good reminder for folks. So you talked about governance. I think that, you know, applies really cleanly. I think we, we should talk a little bit more about that, but then also let's roll in you know, the kind of the triangle of, in government specifically, governance, policy objectives, and kind of public interest or stakeholder interest. Because I think those are three, you know, silent yet very active drivers of, of big government projects. And I think it's a little bit different. I think that's one of the unique things about government projects versus private sector projects is that you have, you know, in many cases for government agencies, legislatures, executive influence, you've got stakeholder groups, one of which is the public at large, not just your customers. Um, if a project goes bad for a for a company, they just lose customers. Um, you know, government doesn't ever lose customers. You're just either serving them well or you're not serving them at all, and that's a big priority. So let's talk a little bit about that. How do you view those stakeholders, especially in the projects that you work on? Yeah, I mean, you know, for for us, what we do, um, the best way to start an initiative is to pull those stakeholder groups together, right? So, so when we start a project, our, 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 our best way of starting it, and we get involved in projects and the life cycle throughout all of it, but the best way to do it is to start with something we call visioning. And so when we do visioning, we pull together the executive level, the, all the way through the frontline staff. Because what we're trying to do is understand what is going on today, where are the problems, 
where are the issues? And what you're going to find with that cross-section of stakeholder groups is you're going to find policy issues and frontline implementation issues. So to your point, governments serve citizens. That's the whole purpose uh, of, of, of operating an agency um, is to make sure you're doing that. And so <clears throat> we identify those drivers, those issues, those topics in those sessions. And because you have a cross-section, you're able to get some collaboration um, and it really sheds some, some light on those. And then what you find is the gap between those oftentimes is the project. So if, if you're saying, well, we need to modernize because we have old systems, but we know we have these policy drivers. I mean, to your point, one thing I didn't mention is every year, every state gets a new set of requirements that they have to implement and there's no choice. And even if you're on a, a biennial, every two years, there's still many sessions in there from the legislature. So no matter what, you're getting a bunch of requirements in. Um, but the frontline staff are the staff that are going to say, well, yeah, we get it. Um, we understand we've had to interpret the legislation and the policy and in, to implement it. Um, but these are the issues we're encountering. So that at least starts it and identifies it because I'd rather identify it early and have an idea of how do you identify those issues, bring the right people to the table to facilitate conversations and ultimately solutions to those issues. Um, and so that's, that's how I prefer to get started. We, we prefer to get started and how we start to identify those. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'll point out for folks, anybody that's familiar with project, we were 15 minutes into a podcast and haven't talked once about methodology other than in the abstract. And I think that's also a big, you know, I, I've worked with, with clients and with groups that are like, oh, we're going to do this lean or, oh, we're going to do this, you know, agile or, oh, we're going to adopt this methodology. And they haven't done the dive that you just described to really understand what, what the disparate parts are of, of what they're actually working on. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about methodology selection, because I think the big misconception is that a project manager is going to come in and say, okay, we're an agile shop and that's how we're going to do it. I, I find that most groups are a blend of methodologies and that blend, you know, is somewhat proprietary. I think that's where how you achieve success in, in project management, but you know, how do you go through going through your toolkit when you're working with a client to pick out and understand, okay, these methodologies are going to help us because of the requirements or because of the success. And what are some of the hallmarks of the methodologies that are maybe your favorites? Yeah, I, I would say right off the bat, um, some sort of, continuous touch point concept, right? So if you look at PMBOK and you look at all the knowledge areas, um, you want to have a PMO that's running a project that obviously has a methodology or approach to managing that. So how are we gonna manage our resources? How are we gonna manage our schedule in terms of doing updates and seeing how far along we are? Those are all the blocking and tackling parts of project management. And I, I mentioned PMBOK before, like you can find that there and that is the structured um, handbook for how to be a project manager. To me, project management has always been a science and an art because that's the, the, the structure of the science is, is there. It's not esoteric. Everybody knows it. Um, the art is how do you implement it in a given situation? So how do I implement it in one state that may have a very strong project management office structure? and their own templates and their own tools, how do I sort of infuse my experience or our team's experience 
to make sure we're using those the best way. And, you know, one of the things that we always look for is continuous touch points and this element of, how can I say it? Getting to the kernel of an issue mm -hmm. and even getting to the, the heart of an answer, I'll say, right? So doing a project, you have to know how far along are people in their tasks because they drive other tasks and there's ultimately deliverables that pop out along the way that are going to help you achieve your ultimate goal. Project manager spends a lot of time getting updates from folks, right? How far along are we? Where are your challenges? You know, doing a daily standup is a great idea for, for certain size teams because you can understand that, understand what the roadblocks are. Huge teams, maybe not so much unless it gets cascaded down. Um, but the point in bringing that up is that to me, the art is how do you really get the right answer? Because nobody wants to say, oh, I'm having, I'm having a problem here yep. in, in a forum like that, or wants to say, I actually don't know what to do here. Like you brought me on to do data analysis, but I'm kind of stumped. So um, I feel like I'm giving you a bit of a mixed answer here, but I think there's definitely the structure of PMBOK, um, this content, concept of continually assessing where you are. Um, but then there's also the art of interacting with the team. And, and I think that that's a, that's a huge part of it. You know, we, um, we, we, we had chatted briefly before about the OODA loop, which mm -hmm. is just a decision-making framework. And I, I, I think about that in terms of what we do in our, on our teams, because we're always understanding where we are, you know, observing, orienting, deciding, and acting, and then doing it again. And that's the iterative part of, of, of what we do. Um, so. No, I think that makes, that makes total sense. And I think it's a great answer because you, uh, something else that you mentioned that, that I'll highlight again is like looking at what resources you actually have available to you within, within whatever organization or entity you're, you're operating. So the culture, the existing culture of the organization matters. I mean, it's, it doesn't, it's not good enough to say, like I, like I said before, it's not gonna say, oh, we're an agile shop. We're gonna come in and we're gonna do agile project management and, and we're gonna we're gonna go down that route or we're going to apply this, you know, our proprietary methodology, which is successful 100% of the time. I think going in and observing and understanding what the culture is and some organizations have stronger, whether they realize it or not, stronger project management cultures um, where they are continuously improving and some some don't, but identifying that. And I, I am, as, as I mentioned, you know, before you've you know, presented your teams presented this OODA loop concept um, quite a bit at our conferences, especially this year, which I think is just so timely. It's a really great, I'm a big fan of kind of frameworks and methodologies that are easy to memorize and easy to apply because the actual utility of that methodology is, is a, a thought pattern. And mm -hmm. I find that project management is a thought pattern. It kind of goes back to your art and science analogy. So it makes, makes a lot of sense. So I think, you know, good, good project managers, I would argue, look at the landscape they're in, try to digest that information and, and hopefully, um, you know, bring their own kind of proprietary set of tools to the table. And a lot of those tools come from the experience of doing those big projects. So I mm -hmm. appreciate you, you sharing a little bit of that with us. Yeah, sure. sure. So Regulatory and compliance environments. Uh, we, we talked about banking earlier. I think that's a really good analogy to government, especially in tax. You know, the banking industry has one thing that we don't, which is a tremendous amount of money. So they they have you know a lot more resources to throw at a problem. However, they've got, I think, the same regulatory and legacy knowledge problem that government has. I mean, there's just not many mainframe programmers out there. There's um, 
not a lot of flexibility in compliance frameworks and government regulations. So for people who aren't necessarily familiar, I mean, I think there's a high level of trust that people have in tax agencies. Whether people realize it or not, that trust is linked to the compliance frameworks that tax agencies have to follow, whether that's you know state policy and law about use of data and, and how that is, is flown through the system, um, whether it's federal policy, things like the IRS publication 1075, which governs how data that the federal government provides to the state is, is utilized within the state. Um, and then all of the additional kind of financial sector regulations that come through and actually touch government. A lot of people don't realize that even something as simple as PCI compliance for payment processing, um, depending on how the agency is organized, that applies to a government agency just like it would a bank or a payment processor. So how do you um, identify, kind of navigate that complex regulatory and compliance environment in these projects? Because I think you know, that's something that can be very overwhelming if you're looking at a big project in a government agency, because sometimes those frameworks, and I'll be honest, a lot of those frameworks don't even contemplate some of the newer technologies right. that states implement. And and I'm a big, everybody at FTA, we always talk about how states are laboratories of innovation. States often implement new technologies before federal agencies do, which means those federal frameworks that were required to comply with often have never encountered those new technologies. And so we have to be a collaborator in order to navigate navigate that as we as we work on these projects. Yeah. Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I feel like um, <clears throat> you have to have some experience and knowledge in the domain, right? So you have to know you rattled off a bunch of compliance frameworks and you have to really have a sense of what they are because you've, you've done these projects, you have that experience and that enables you, I think, to be effective because to me, again, a project manager is about facilitating these conversations, identifying the issues and getting the right people to talk about what those issues are. And I do think that there is a skill to being able to um, take something as undefined as saying, um, we're going to implement um, a new payment method and we have to look at how PCI impacts us. That is a broad statement. When you say how do we go down that path? How do we figure that out? What are the requirements, right? That's what we want as project manager. What are the requirements? What do I have to make sure we comply with because I have to test it and make sure it works? Getting from that big question down to the nitty gritty of what are the real requirements we have to comply with? What are the challenges and what do we have to do different to allow us to comply with that? I think that is that, again, that kind of that vertical um, uh, I don't know what you would call it, staircase that a PM is required to uh, traverse. Um, but oftentimes I find that we're in that position of facilitating those conversations, asking good inquisitive questions based on experience, but asking in this jurisdiction, how's it going to be impacted? And then continuing to drive that, documenting the decisions, the actions, what are the open issues still? And then how are we going to wrap this in the end and make sure that it works? Um, so I think it starts with that subject matter expertise, like knowing what you don't know or knowing what the frameworks are, but then you've got to get the right people involved. Because also the other part of it is that we're always, um, we're hired by jurisdictions on their behalf, but we don't have obviously the authority to make these decisions. Sure. We can suggest and we can help identify um, options but they ha they obviously have to make those. So that's the value I think we bring is helping them clearly identify what the questions are and then what the options are and then 
arriving at that decision. Yep. And I think that's, it illustrates kind of another point that, that I'll make. And a lot of times in, I think in the private sector, most commonly, but a lot of times people perceive, you know, anything relating to compliance. Like a lot of people think compliance is a checkbox or it's a pass fail or it's a yes, no. And, you know, one of the things that if, if you're listening and you're not a, a government person or you're not familiar with these frameworks, quite literally none of the frameworks that I just outlined are pass fail frameworks. They're all, there's a gradient to it. There's levels of compliance. There's always action items that are being worked on. So, you know, to your point, Frank, about getting the right people in place that can respond to, you know, what's your current status? Where are you looking to go with this? And then how do those various things interplay with other elements of the project? I think, you know, recruiting that expertise early is, is really important. And, you know, a good project manager is going to help with that recruitment because I think a lot of project management, I mentioned this on the, the last episode we did on communications and I'll, I'll probably mention it a million more times. One of my favorite phrases is that, you know, when in, in any work that you do is, I think, especially true in project management, when you're good at what you do, that just means that you're good of, you're good at knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. And that, <laughs> that's what an expert is, right? When you go, when you approach an expert, that expert may never have encountered the problem you have, uh, may never have encountered it in the way that you have it, but they're going to know what to do when you don't know what to do. And I, and I, I just think that's um, super true when it comes to these, these compliance frameworks. Yeah. So related to compliance frameworks, let's talk about risk management. And I think risk management, it's super important. A lot of people hear that these days and they think cybersecurity and data breaches and things like that. But I think risk is endemic in projects. It's everywhere. And so what role does, you know, does project manage, do project managers, does a project management team kind of play in that risk management aspect of a, of a major, major project or initiative? Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, I think there's a very clear structure for risk management that we that we apply. Um, so, identifying the risk, having a risk register, having regular reviews, understanding what our options are, what's the impact and the probability, all those things. Because a risk, by definition, is just something that could impact the project. Um, when it does impact the project, it's an issue. I know I'm telling you what you already know. Um, and then when it's an issue, you have to you have to address it. But when it's a risk, you are <laughs> great segue. You are kind of in the in the realm of this is a possible problem. Um, we might not know everything about it. Mm -hmm. So what do we know about it? What don't we know about it? And how do we increase the amount, the percentage that we know about it? Right. So I think it was um, Colin Powell had it in a autobiography. He had this great. Um, equation for pro making a decision and it boiled down to that when he, when in, in in his framework when he knew 70 to 80 percent about an issue he felt comfortable making a decision because the idea was the remaining 20 i think it was 80 percent the remaining 20 percent wasn't going to really move the dial that much that extra incremental amount was going to move it enough and it wasn't going to outweigh the delay in making a decision yep so i feel like that's so there's a risk management framework. There's again structure that we use, but I, the art of it, and I'm almost going back to this, is kind of understanding what what is this risk all about, 
who do I need to talk to? Who do we need to bring it to bear to understand it more, to figure out like, is this something we really have to focus on now? There's always a risk horizon as well. Um, and and I, th I think that's all part of it. Um, so the blocking and tackling part of it, but also being able to ask good questions, get the right people in the room and then figure out, is it time to make a decision on this? Is it time to punt it a little bit? Is it time to get more information? Um, that's kind of how I approach it. No, I think that I actually, I, I love that example because I think a lot of times, uh, especially in government, certainty is often valued over almost anything else. So it's even sometimes valued over time. And that I feel is the main rub when it comes to getting large projects done, specifically in government, is that there is this resistance to taking an action until there is certainty. And so having having experts, having people that are, you know, to your point, are artists in this field and are accomplished artists in this field to be able to take their counsel and say, look, we have 80 to 80, 90% of the information. The last 10% is either never going to come to us because this is such a big topic that we're not going to be able to get it, or it's going to take us two years. We're going to delay decision by two years. And that two years is going to cost, you know, have a cost both in terms of time and money and expense and programming. Whereas making that taking that action when you when you know enough and the the expertise the project management part is when you can identify when enough is and I think mm -hmm. to your point every every issue has its own enough threshold but this it's really interesting I I didn't you know you never know where these conversations are going to kind of take you and we always have you know we always have an outline that we try to follow but this is almost I think turned into a really great like project management 101 guide for somebody inside of government who may be engaging with a project management resource because there's so many things I think that you can do ahead of time before you start working with the project manager. There's so many things that you can do to be a better resource for your counterpart. I guess to that point, I'd love to, you know, I'll put you on the spot and say like, what's your, when you work with a new client, like what's your ideal counterpart in that client? Like I know we talk about diverse stakeholder groups, like you're always working with the executive all the way through the line staff, but generally speaking, there's a core team that the agency will form to interface with the the contractor and the consultant and the project management team. You know, who are the best people to make up that team? What traits do you look for? Because I, I don't think, you know, most government agencies don't just have an internal person titled project manager. Um, if right. you do, you're way ahead of the curve because most agencies don't. But instead, how do you identify that talent to build that team that's going to be the most productive when interfacing with groups like yours? Yeah. I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. We've worked with so many great teams and what, and, and to me, the common thread is you find the people that want to get, get the job done. So, um, there's a concept of, um, ownership of the issue or ownership of what they're, what you're working on. So, you know, we go into with clients all the time and there, there's typically teams that are there, um, and they're bringing, um, Typically, they're bringing experts from certain areas, certain process areas, certain program areas. But you're going to find that there's going to be a couple of them that are just really good at what they do and they know a lot, but also that really want the project to succeed. And I would say that that is one of the success factors of any project. You know, when I was uh, younger um, and doing uh, interviews, I remember one of the questions that would be asked um, uh, I remember it being asked was like, what's the single most important 
success factor for project management. You know, and I had all the answers. I'm like, well, you have to know PMBOK and you have to do this and all. And as I get older, I realize to me, the most single most important thing is you need people that want it to succeed because you, you can bring all the methodology and the framework you want to it. But if you don't have that drive, then the obstacles are really going to be obstacles. Otherwise, you're just going to be things that you figure out how to go over, under, around. Um, so I don't know how to codify that. I just kind of know it when I see it. And I think our teams do as well that, you know, we work with client teams, which have people that are so dedicated. I mean, they're dedicated to the mission of the agency and to supporting taxpayers and we work in other domains, support drivers to support um, benefit claimants on the labor side. And that they're, they're totally bought into that. And, and I admire them for that. That's excellent. But then they get on this project where they've never done anything like this before. It's a modernization project. And they're like, oh, I get it. Uh, why we're doing this. And I'm going to run through a wall to make this happen. Like, we'll, we'll take those people on the team all day long. Um, so. Oh, that's awesome. That's a hopefully, hopefully at least one future client of yours is listening to this and, and assembles their team accordingly. Because I think that's, that's <laughs> incredible advice. It's a good, good distillation of, of what to look for. So let's. That I think was more of the art answer. So let's talk a little bit about some science, uh, some KPIs. So KPIs for, I'm going to not fall into the acronym trap, key performance indicators. So they're sure. data metrics that you monitor during a project in order to make sure that, you know, what you're feeling in terms of progress is aligning with, with actual progress. So what are, you know, what's your favorite KPI? I feel like I always have to ask project managers that because everybody's got one. And then what are some KPIs that people should be thinking about as they work on a project to make sure that the project is on track? Yeah, I think, you know, from a, a basic standpoint, you always want to go back to the schedule, right? So the schedule is really a, we'll get a little PME here. You know, the work breakdown structure mm -hmm. is the tasks to complete something and the output of those tasks. And you could put them in sequence or in parallel, depending on how you need to, it has to all come together to complete the ultimate objective of the project. When you put time and you sequence those things, it becomes a schedule. And the schedule is really, in my mind, where the rubber meets the road, right? If you have a good schedule and you know everything that has to happen and when it has to happen, and importantly, what tasks and deliverables enable others to happen, right? Because mm -hmm. that's where you get caught, that concept of the critical path where, you know, you know, you've got to convert, you know, five years worth of data, but before you convert five years worth of data, you need to review it and clean it because you can't just convert it from an old system without cleaning it into a new system. You have to, you know, fix it because it's pretty dirty in the old system. If it's a 30, 40 year old system without referential or um, entry integrity, right? When you're entering stuff in, in the eighties or nineties, you could put any data in any field, etc. So, so that's a predecessor task, big picture. Um, so I always want to look at where are we against that schedule. Um, and again, that comes down to sometimes it's pretty straightforward. And um, in other words, you might be able to say, well, we have a million records we have to review and we're through 500,000 of them and we've cleaned them. We know we're 50% or roughly 50%. Um, but other things can be a little bit more of a, a, a kind of a gut check. Um, you know, we, uh, we did business analysis sessions. We're designing the future state. 
we did three sessions. We think we've got two more to get through it. And then we got to create the flows and figure out what the requirements are so we can go and configure the system. Well, you, you might say, well, we're about 60% done. Um, but I always look for that core percentage completion of tasks um, and of the completion of deliverables. So another big thing that, as you know, in a tax implementation is you need to figure out um, your letters, correspondence, right? You might have 500 legacy letters. Some of them are duplicative a little bit. Some of them have parts that are duplicated. Some of them haven't been used. You got to go through those and figure out which ones are going to be modernized and survive in the future. Um, well, again, it's a matter of just tracking how far along are we in the review of those and how far along are we in the definition of the future ones. Yep. I think that's one of my, yeah, letters are one of my favorites because in government, a letter that anyone gets from a government agency by the time you receive it has been drafted by a technical expert. It's been cleaned up by a plain language expert or someone who you know translates government and policy into you know plain English speak. It's been then reviewed by attorneys to make sure that the technical correct you know the correct technical um, definitions haven't been watered down by the explaining. Then it goes back to the technical expert to make sure that throughout that process nothing's gotten removed from the intent of the letter. Then it goes to some sort of executive. I mean, there's just so many layers of thoughtful approval that happen on just a simple letter. I mean, any letter that you get. So. I always, you know, we always talk in within tax agencies about how taxpayers don't open letters because it comes from the tax agency and that's a yeah. scary thing. I, to me, I'm like that. If you at all like value like communication, like open every letter you get from the government because you have to just appreciate like every single one is a work of art almost. It's, you know, oh, yeah. as a, yeah. as someone from the, you know, the, the marketing and advertising world many years ago, like that. That just doesn't happen anywhere else. I mean, anywhere else, a, you know, a marketing mailer that you get from someone or even an email that you get from a retailer, it, it's like flown by two people and then, you know, <laughs> you know, Bob, the supervisor, like eyeballs it and signs off and it goes out. Like, and everything's so intentional and calculated in government. And there's, to your point, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these letters and notices. So I'm, I find that all, one, one aspect I always find particularly fascinating. And yeah. I, you know, wholeheartedly agree with you about timeline my favorite you know i feel like it's unfair to ask you what your favorite is about sharing mine my favorite uh is always like the dependency reports like i always like looking at exactly where where that traffic jam is because a non-dependent task if that's running late you know it, it's not as long as it doesn't run past the end of the project it's not a big deal but anything that has that critical dependency is is those are your biggest fires, right? Like something yeah. that has no dependencies, but it's running late. That is so far down on my personal list of concern relative to, you know, a dependent task that might still be green. It might still be good, but it's only at 70%. And right now we really want to see it at 95. And I think that, you know, if, if timelines can be so overwhelming for people to look at, especially if you don't have the training to look at them and read them. Like just find find those dependencies and see where those are because those are the things that at least I have found time and time and time again can push a project way past its its deadline. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I mean it's a whole that's a whole topic right there, because scheduling can collapse under its own weight. You know, you can have I've seen three thousand line project schedules that um, you know, it's a full-time person to just keep it maintained. E even if you have good data going into it, like good feedback to say, where are you on a given task, you know, and making sure all the linkages are there. I, I think, I know that we're approaching 
towards the end here, but one of the fake questions you had, you had uh, posted there of things to think about is the future of technology, you know, and, and I can totally see AI helping with scheduling and tracking and identifying critical path issues and identifying problems in the schedule in terms of critical path and all those things. So that's my, that, that's one of my hopes because that is a, that can become a very complex situation. Absolutely. Well, and I think this, there's been so much really good kind of advice, uh, you know, that you've given as we've gone through the the podcast, but we're going to have, we're going to end up, uh, wrap up with a couple pieces of advice. But before we get to that, I want to talk about two things that I think get ignored or given less value than they should in, in government project management. See if you agree with me. Um, one is what you just touched on, which is I think that resources dedicated to just the action of managing the project tend to be minimized or underfunded because it's not the functional or program work. And so the notion of needing some, uh, you know, a substantial portion of someone's time just to monitor a timeline um, usually is is not taken as seriously, I, I, I feel like. And that may not be unique to government. That may just be unique to organizations that don't do a lot of project management. Yeah. The other one that I think um, government's doing a far better job today than they did 10 years ago with, but it was something we talked about at the beginning, which is change management. And we won't go too far down that rabbit hole because it's an entire podcast. Yeah. But I think when you look at a project, sometimes people are like, oh, the project is replacing the system. Once the system's replaced, you know, technology is intuitive. People use iPhones. They figure it out all the time. I've heard all of these kind of platitude excuses for why change management and training get minimized in terms of the resources they're allocated in a project. So yeah. Do you, you know, first, I guess, do you agree if there's anything else out there that you think are, are big ones, I'd love to hear them. But then also like, what's your advice to folks to, to combat that attitude towards underfunding kind of those two critical aspects yeah. of a project? I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. I think in general, project management is a little bit commoditized. I feel like people are like, well, let's just get a project manager and they can pro- manage this project and we can just keep going. Right. Let, let's, let's, let's do it. It is not to me, and it's, I'm partial to it, right? Because that's been my career. But there's a lot that goes into a good project manager and, and a good experience, like a good, a successful project with someone who's how to drive it and manage it, right? There's a lot to it. And the underfunding aspect, I think, is related because saying it's just a project schedule, just create it and update it. Oh, you know, you need an expert sometimes in some of these tools to do that. And then again, you need to get the right data to go into it. Otherwise, it's not a useful schedule. Um, the the other thing you mentioned is in terms of organizational change management is absolutely on point. Um, because again, just like a project is made up of people, and you can you can give people tasks and tell them to go do their work and be an authoritative project manager, but you're not going to mm-hmm. get very far. You've got to learn to interact with people. Some people react different ways to different tor- sorts of interactions, and um, you have you have to learn to do that. Just like new systems, right? There's a whole uh, emotional element of doing using a new system. I mean, one of the ones that we we typically will see, and I can totally relate to it, is you've got people that have worked on a system that's 30 years old. They've spent their whole career in that system, and they're an expert in that system. And it's not uncommon to say, well. If you take away the system, you're taking me away. Like I'm not an expert anymore. And now there's a whole new system and everyone else is going to be experts. So what am I going to do? Or there's an element of self-worth to that. Just being very honest. And we all have that in us. We want to be, we want to feel like we're bringing something special and a lot, everybody is doing that. So when you change a system, 
it's not a matter of just, well, they'll pick it up. Like there has to be, and, and this, I know you'll, you'll have a future conversation about this, but you really have to understand and connect with people and understand what their motivations are for, it's really fear, right? It's change is, is scary. It's unknown. Um, and education alone doesn't always do it. Uh, I think you really have to, you got to just have conversations. You got to talk to people. You have to understand their motivation. So. No, I couldn't couldn't have said it better. I think you know your insight is is one that I'm excited to dive into in the future. I think you're right. It's it's a completely different conversation, but I think there's a reason why change management is not called training and why training is not called change management. I think there's there's a lot of lot of differentiator differentiators there. And so anyone embarking on a project, um, if if you're embarking on one soon, and you know who knows when we'll do that particular podcast episode, but like look into change management, understand it, talk to other agencies that have done it really well. Um, or that you feel have done it really well. If you are looking for, you know, some referrals in that space, uh, reach out to, you know, myself or Frank. We work with a bunch of different agencies, and so we can we can help help you identify best practices. But all right, last last two questions I have for you. One is okay. advice, and one is prospective. So first question is uh, anyone interested in getting into project management, um, whether it's somebody early in their career or someone who has participated in a project and decided that you know, this is their long lost love. And now all of a sudden that this is what they want to, you know, invest their time and career in. What's some, you know, what's the first couple things you'd recommend anyone do uh, to kind of broaden their strength in, in project management and, and kind of continue to advance in that field? Um, I think, you know, I, I'm a certified project manager and I think that that's an important step, but I think before you have to do all that, I think just get just take a look at what Pimbach has to say about knowledge areas. Just go to PMI.org and you can find a bunch of stuff and look for those knowledge areas and step back and look at that structure because it's going to be things that you would expect, right? But it's, it's, a, it's a good structure, right? You got to focus on budget, resources, schedule, uh, risks, issues, all those things. That'll at least give a new project manager or somebody coming into it uh, structure for it. But the other advice I would give is... Um, you got to get some reps under your belt, right? When I was first learning how to golf 40 years ago, whatever, 35 years ago, and I don't golf anymore, but when I did, I learned, I learned um, because my job at that time was picking up golf ball, golf balls in the range. And so I would go and I would hit golf balls after, after hours and the pros were all there and I would get free pointers. And I remember being so frustrated and because uh, I couldn't hit the ball consistently. And one of the guys said, hey, man, you just haven't hit enough golf balls. And I have never forgotten that because to me, it's the same thing in your career, in everything. You just have to get experience with it. And you have to be comfortable with the fact that you're not going to be an expert right out of the gate. No one's an expert in the first time they do anything. And especially in project management, every situation is different. But you will see some patterns and you'll understand that that art and science part of it comes into play. You'll learn more about yourself and just be off to the races. So I think that's fantastic advice and I'll do a little bit of shameless promotion of FTA. So, you know, experience and knowledge, two big critical components that you just talked about. And I feel that anyone who has an opportunity to attend one of our conferences, if you work in a government agency, uh, there's a lot of free knowledge and a lot of free experience that's shared during those conferences that can help you understand context in ways. I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed at the experts that, that kind of willingly bring 
their knowledge to share. Um, you know, I'm thankful for your team coming and bringing different me- methodologies that you've presented on over the years. I'm excited to see what your team kind of presents on next year. And I guess to that point, I'll ask you, like, what do you prospectively see? We talked about AI a little bit. Um, what trends are are cooking right now that you think are going to affect the government project management world? And is there anything other than, you know, staying up to date with them that we should be doing to prepare? You know, you touched on it before about Agile. And I think that there was a phase where Agile was kind of the buzzword. And I, I feel like we've moved into more of a Agile iterative approach to projects. Um, and so I think that's definitely a trend. If not, it's already existing. And maybe I'm behind the eight ball in terms of behind the curve in terms of, yeah, it's been like that for, for a while. But we have seen some projects that were kind of waterfall that were had a long design phase and a long test and go to more of an iterative approach, which I think is the way to go. Um, these are big projects, so you can't be completely agile, but you can be iterative. Um, the other part is I do think technology is, um, is, is going to be a factor in helping us automate some of these things that take up a lot of time. Right. Because as a project manager, as we talked about, there's a lot of things to track and stay on top of, but there's also a lot of important conversations to have and meetings and facilitation sessions to have. And so I feel like, you know, AI is basically, and again, I have a rudimentary knowledge. I listened to your first, your, your inaugural podcast about it. I've seen all the um, uh, presentations at the, the tech conference and, and everything. But I do think that the ability to process higher volumes of information, look for patterns, uh, identify uh, issues, identify risks, what could be trending, what way, just leveraging all that technology. It, it's going to make project management more about reading the uh, dashboard and understanding what should we take a look at and focus on and what should we talk about and facilitate as opposed to the administrative piece of it. Awesome. Well, some great insights, great discussion as always. I'm glad that we could have finally chat like in a place where anybody else can benefit from this conversation because I always feel like our our chats at, at our conferences are always so informative, at least to me. And and I you've taught me a lot about uh, you know how you perceive projects and some of the things that, that your team's worked on. So thanks for taking some time to sit down with me. And uh, we'll I'm sure we'll have you back again at some point soon. And if uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with Frank. Uh, Frank, I don't know if you have anything that you're working on right now or any way that you'd prefer people to reach out to you over LinkedIn perhaps, but. Yeah, LinkedIn's probably the easiest way. You can find me pretty easily. Um, so that's probably the best way to ping me. Hit me up, happy to talk to anybody. And Ryan, I just want to thank you for this. I'm. It really is an honor. I've, I've enjoyed your podcast. I always enjoy talking to you, but I, I really appreciate you having me on and listening to me rant about this a little. So thank you very much. Awesome. No, thanks, Frank. All right, everyone. Uh, Thanks for listening. If you stuck in with us till the very end there, and we'll catch you next month with another exciting topic in tax administration. Mm